Hallelujah. God is good. Amen. I heard somebody say it all the time. God is good all the time, regardless of what situation you're in. How many know you need to remind yourself how good God is sometimes? Sometimes you've got to remind yourself, God, you are good. Even when my life is falling apart, God's still God. God's still God on the throne. Well, we're still in our sermon series. Won't you be my neighbor? How many remember that last week? I come out with the sweater, Mr. Rogers kind of deal. Mr. Rogers had a whole lot to say about what it means to a neighbor, be a neighbor, but Jesus has all that needs to be said about being a neighbor. How many would agree with that this morning? Today we've titled this message, Throw Them a Party. How many like parties in the place? Anybody like parties? I didn't say how many like to party, I said how many like parties in the place? We all like parties when it comes down to it. We all like celebrations. Well, I heard about Tony Kampala. Anybody ever heard of Tony? He's a great minister, travels all over the world doing seminars, conferences, uh, teaching and preaching everywhere you can imagine. Well, several years ago, he was in Honolulu, Hawaii. What a place to preach, amen? Honolulu, Hawaii, doing a conference out there. And uh, if you've ever flown through multiple time zones, how many know you can get a little bit of jet lag sometimes? Your body clock can get a little out of sync. Well, that's exactly what happened to Tony Kampala. He was in his hotel room, 3 o'clock in the morning, couldn't sleep, wide awake, a little bit hungry. So he decides to go out and get a bite to eat. He goes down out of the hotel, goes, walks about a block away, finds a little uh, greasy spoon diner. At uh, 3 o'clock in the morning, it's only him and Henry, the owner, that are in there. He sits down and orders a cup of coffee and a donut. About 3.30... A group of eight or nine ladies walk into the diner. They had been out working the streets. And Tony's not trying to overhear or eavesdrop on their conversation, but they're the only people in the place. And he hears this one lady named Agnes say that tomorrow is her birthday, the next day. She's going to be 39 years old, and she's never had a birthday party in her life. Well, as soon as the ladies left, Tony went to Henry and said, are they regulars here, uh, Henry? And he says, yeah, they come in here like clockwork every night. Uh, about 3.15 to 3.30, they'll come in here. And Tony says, I've got this crazy idea. How about we so throw a surprise birthday party for Agnes? He said, I overheard her say that she's turning 39 tomorrow. She's never had a birthday party in her life. How about we decorate this diner, Henry, and throw her a surprise birthday party? Henry says, that's a great idea. He says, I'll even bake the cake. So it's on. The next night, uh, uh, Tony shows up. He's got balloons. He's got streamers. He's got a big sign that says, Happy Birthday, Agnes. Him and Henry decorate the uh, diner. And, about, uh, and Henry has put the word out there on the streets that they're having this uh, surprise birthday party for Agnes. So at 3.30 in the morning, just about every prostitute in Honolulu walks into the diner. Tony Campolo said, It's wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. He's in there, and, and uh, Agnes hasn't shown up yet. They've deliberately delayed her. Well, when she walks into the door, everybody shouts, Happy birthday, Agnes! And they start singing happy birthday. She's beside herself. She's embarrassed, doesn't know what to do. Nothing like this has ever happened to her before. And about that time, Henry comes out of the kitchen with the birthday cake with candles burning and says, Happy birthday, Agnes. Blow out the candles, make your wish, and let's cut the cake. Embarrassed again. She doesn't know what to do. She says, I can't. I've never had a birthday party before. I've never had a birthday cake before. 
And so she turns around, being all nervous, and says, hey, I'm going home to tell my mom what you guys are doing for me. I'll be back, cut the cake later. She leaves. You talk about awkward. Tony Campalo doesn't even know what to do. So he goes, how about we pray? And he prays this beautiful prayer for Agnes. He prays this beautiful prayer for every uh, woman that's in the diner that night. And after he gets through, Henry, the owner, leans across the table and says, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. He said, what kind of church do you preach at? Tony Campalo said, it's just like one of those moments that you know that the Holy Spirit is giving you every word to say. He said, I preach in the type of church that, su that throws surprise birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> Henry looks at him and says, wow. He said, I would even go to a church like that. Tony looked back at him and said, wouldn't we all? And I thought about that whole story. Isn't that the type of church that God wants every church to be? I mean, if I did a word association this morning and I used the word church, how many of you, and I don't think many of us, would associate church with a place that throws parties, right? At least that wouldn't be our number one expectation. But why is it that it is absolutely a recurring theme in the Gospels? It's a recurring theme in the parables and the stories that Jesus told. Do we need to do a better job of preaching the gospel? Yes, without a doubt. But can you imagine, church, the change that we could make in this world if we got better at throwing parties? If we got better at celebrating people's lives and celebrating Jesus' life in those people's lives? Can you imagine the changes that could take place? And before you get the wrong idea about this party, I'm not talking about one of those animal house things, okay? I'm not talking about the guy that got the uh, Mike Tyson t uh, face tattoo on him either. I'm talking about the story that Jesus is about to tell in Luke chapter 15, uh, verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. What they're saying is this Jesus is hanging around with all the wrong people. Remember, it's the tax collectors and the sinners that were really spiritually hungry for something that they knew they didn't have in their life and were going to Jesus, hanging around Jesus to find what they need in their life. But it's the spiritually elite, the religious people, let's just call them the scribes and the Pharisees, that wanted these sinners to actually be rejected. They wanted them to be avoided at all costs. But I love how Jesus is always turning religious ideas upside down. Jesus decides he's going to hang out with these people. He's going to eat with these people. He's going to associate with these people. He's going to accept these people. He's going to connect with these people. Sinners I'm talking about. And if you know anything about the culture back then, eating a meal with uh, people back in that day was a sign of acceptance. It was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of fellowship, hospitality. So Jesus not only accepts these people, he connected with the sinners. Because unlike the religious people, he saw value in the sinners because he knew with all of his heart they were image bearers of his father that needed to hear the truth. Now it was the religious people that caused all the problems. It was the religious people, the ones that were supposed to point the way to God, that were actually blocking the way to God. They were actually thinking that they were the holy gatekeepers, that they were commissioned to keep the riffraff out. They thought they were the holy gatekeepers that commissioned to keep out the undesirables and the sinners. So what was the attitude of the religious people? It was that the sinners didn't even deserve God's attention. That was their attitude. When I thought of that attitude, it made me stop and think, wait a minute. 
It stopped, made me stop and ask myself a question, which I hope you'll ask yourself the same question. But if I put this whole thing in 21st century language, who out there are you friending and who out there are you unfriending? Who are you friending? Who are you unfriending? I know that's a Facebook term, so many of you, probably all of you can relate to that. But if you're out there only friending religious people and unfriending unreligious people, then we've got this whole Jesus thing backwards. We might think we're following Jesus, but actually we're following the ways of the scribes and the Pharisees. Here's what I know, according to the Word of God, that it calls Jesus a friend of sinners. Here's another thing I know about Jesus, according to the Word of God. He was always offending the Pharisees. He was always offending the religious folks. But let me just expound on this a little bit. It was the non-religious people that were drawn to Jesus And it was the religious people that didn't like those people that were drawn to Jesus, especially tax collectors. Remember last week I said tax collectors were considered to be the worst, the worst of worst of sinners? And there's a reason for that. The reason they looked at tax collectors so bad was because back in Palestine, uh, they were under Roman rule, so the Jews were under Roman rule. They had to give Caesar what was due Caesar. So the Jews had to pay their taxes to Caesar, but the problem came in where the Roman Empire actually hired Jews to collect the taxes. So before long, the Jews got the, the tax-collecting Jews got the, the uh, uh, reputation of being the worst traitors out there, the worst cheaters, because they were. They were actually profiting and stealing from their own uh, people. So everybody hated them. Everybody but Jesus. Jesus loved even tax collectors. That's why the religious folks called Jesus a friend of sinners. The funny thing is, the Pharisees thought they were insulting Jesus by calling him that. Guess what? He took it as a compliment. Jesus turned it around. That's no, that's no insult. That's a compliment. I love Jesus' answer to them. He says, it's not the righteous who need a doctor, but those who are sick. It's not the righteous that need a doctor, it's those who are sick. Jesus was definitely someone who had a huge heart for people that were hurting, for the outcasts, for the misfits. That's why he was always hanging out with those sinners. That's why he was always touching lepers. That's why he was always uh, friending Samaritans, which the Jews hated. And this one really threw the Jews, for, uh, the, the Romans, the Jews, the Pharisees for a loop. Jesus got one of the tax collectors to be his disciple. You may not realize that, but it's a guy by the name of Matthew, and if you've ever read the New Testament, that's the first book in the Gospels. The first book in the New Testament, written by Matthew. How did that happen? Where did that start? It actually started all with a party. It started with a party at Matthew's house. Isn't it amazing how many awesome, great things happen and start at parties? Think about it. There's a lot of great things that start at parties. Let me just say this. Who are you befriending today? Back to that first question. I think Jesus said it best when he says, I came seeking to save that which was lost. I think we'd all agree that Jesus was all about helping people to find their way back to God. Amen? That was his purpose, helping people find their way back to God. And that generally starts with befriending somebody that's far from God. But in Luke chapter 15, if you've read that section of the gospel, Jesus tells three stories. First of all, he talks about the lost sheep. Then he talks about the lost coin. And thirdly, he talks about the lost son. And every one of these three stories, he makes one main point, and it's that God has a huge heart for those that are outside the fold, outside the fence, outside the family, outside the church. That's why we here at Victory say we exist to make heaven more crowded. 
We exist to make heaven more crowded. I think that ought to be the, uh, uh, the main goal of every church. We exist for people that aren't even here yet. We are people to bring people, we, are, we exist to bring people that are far from God back to God. And we serve a God who searches high and low for the one lost sheep. We serve a God who searches high and low for the one lost coin. And we serve a God who's watching for his son to return, and when he sees him, he runs with all of his might. You know, we know this story I'm going to talk about as being the story of the prodigal son, right? Some people call it the wayward son. But I want to focus on this, and most of you know it's a story about this son basically disowning his father by asking his father for his inheritance even before the father dies. And in my mind, I'm thinking he's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, but even if you're not, give me what you've worked all your life to earn uh, and obtain. Give it to me, and I'll be out of here. You know, when I thought about that whole scenario, it reminded me of a guy, a friend that I used to have years ago, early in my ministry, that was a devoted Christian. He loved God, but he messed up. He got into an affair with some woman in his office. They had an affair. They committed adultery. It wrecked his marriage. It wrecked his family. It wrecked his life. And 20-some years later, he's still angry at God. But he asked me a question one day, and I thought, this is kind of odd. He says, you know, when I started that affair with that other woman, he said, why didn't God stop me? Why didn't God step in and make me stop? Why didn't God at least warn me? Doesn't God have all the power? That was his thinking. And I thought, God could have stopped you, but he didn't. God didn't stop that guy for the same reason he didn't stop Adam and Eve in the garden from eating the fruit. God didn't stop that guy uh, uh, just like he didn't stop David from having an affair with Bathsheba. And God didn't stop that guy just like he didn't have this father in this story we're talking about. Bar the door, lock his son in, and say, you're not going anywhere. You know why he didn't do that? Because that's not the nature of our Heavenly Father. That's not the nature of God. How many have found out that he loves us so much that he allows us to make our own decisions, our own choices? We have a free will, even if he knows what those consequences are going to be. And parents, if your kids are out there making bad choices and bad decisions, you know how hard that is just to sit by and watch it happen. Amen? It's horrible. But Jesus says in this story that when the prodigal son got his money, he went to a distant land. Most of us think when we hear distant land as someplace that's 100 miles away, maybe 1,000 miles away. Do you know a distant land in the Bible doesn't have to be 100 miles away, doesn't have to be 1,000 miles away? You know where a distant land can be with God? One step out of God's will. One step out of God's will. It's not a matter of geography. It's a matter of a broken relationship with God. So this wayward son, this uh, uh, son that's gone off with this inheritance, he didn't do so well in the distant land. He squandered his wealth. I shouldn't say his wealth. It was his dad's wealth. He not only wasted all his dad's money, but he separated himself from every important relationship in his life. He separated himself from his father, from his brother, from his family, and from his friends. And how many of you have ever heard somebody that's in the middle of their sin tell everybody around them, don't worry about it, I'm not hurting anybody else but me? That is a lie from hell. That is a lie because you're hurting everybody else that's around you, everybody that's close to you. So anyway, this son made a bunch of horrible decisions. He ends up finding himself in a pig pen, which I would say that's pretty much rock bottom. 
But I love this. The Bible says at that point, he came to his senses. He decides to go home and beg his father for forgiveness. Look what it says. But while he was, a, was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. That tells me the father never quit looking for him. Amen? His father was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. You know, to kind of set this up, you've got to go back and realize in that culture, in that day, the men wore robes. Guys, how easy would it be to run in a robe today? Not very easy, right? In order to run in a robe, you'd have to reach down and pick up a whole hymn full of robe and pull it above your knees so you wouldn't trip on it. Well, back in that day, that was considered very undignified, disrespectful to show your knees, show your legs uh, as a man. But I want you to think about this father. He breaks the rules. He grabs a handful of robe, runs toward his son, even before his son sees him and runs toward him. He makes a beeline for his son. Back in that day, earthly kings never ran to meet anybody. They would beckon you to come to them, bow down before their throne, bow down before them. So when I see this whole scene and put it all together, this is such a huge scene of love. It's amazing how loving this scene is. And isn't that what Jesus is? Think about it. It's God in the flesh. It's God humbling himself. Isn't Jesus actually God running to us from a far land? Isn't Jesus God running to us, pulling up a hem full of his robe and running all the way to the cross, holding his arms out wide to embrace everyone on this earth yesterday, today, and forever? Isn't that our God? That's the love of a father that I'm talking about today. That's the kind of God that I'm talking about. It goes on to say, about this son. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. So this father, with the heart that he has, is saying, hey, let's throw a celebration. Let the party start. I love that. And I love the language this father uses. Get the royal robe. He didn't say just get any old robe out of the closet. He said, get the best robe. He said, get the best robe, put it on him. He said, get the ring. That was the family signet ring, the most important ring of all. Put sandals on his feet. That was a sign of a free man, not a slave. So all these things are adding up in the celebration. This is what this father is all about. This is what his heart is all about. He says it's time to celebrate now because this son that was perpetually lost is now found. This son that has been away from home has come home. This son has been found spirit, soul, and body. You know, most of us dads in that moment, if a son would have done that to us and would have come back, we would have at least taken five minutes to give the son a little lecture, right? Our human nature probably would have kicked in, don't you ever do that again. This father didn't do that. I love the heart of this father. This father suddenly, without even thinking, throws a celebration. And I think it's because he knew deep down his son was sorry. I believe he knew with all of his heart that his son was heart hearts was broken for what he had done he was repentant repentance does a lot amen repentance is all it's what it's all about there was a guy named uh, by the name of bob Goff. he's a great minister also has written a several books spiritual books in this one book he wrote uh, that's called everybody always he tells a great story bob travels he's another one of those traveling ministers he travels about a half a million miles every year 
He's going here, there, and everywhere all the time, going through all sorts of different airports. And he said, going through that many airports that often, you get to know the TSA agents fairly well. He tells about, tells about this one particular occasion where he runs across this one TSA agent, and when he gets up to the line, instead of showing his ID, he just reaches over and shakes the security uh, guy's hand. And he, while he's got a hold of this guy's hand, he says, I've got to stop and tell you. He said, I've been through this airport hundreds of times, and every time I come through here, you treat people so well. You, love, uh, you treat them with such respect, make them feel so safe. You just do an awesome job. The way you treat people is actually the way I see Jesus loving people. Anyway, before Bob got done, this TSA agent had tears running down his face. He comes out from behind his little desk and gives Bob a hug. Um, thing about it, it's kind of funny because Bob's this real tall guy and this TSA agent is this real small guy. And the, Bob says that this TSA agent's head rested on his shoulder and he said, I knew it looked odd as heck. They're wondering, what are we doing in the middle of the airport doing a slow dance? Amen? But he said, that was the beginning, beginning of my real friendship with Adrian, the TSA agent. And it started with three minutes at a time. Just three minutes at a time. He said, since then, I've been through the airport many, many times. We connect a little bit here or there, and it's always three minutes at a time. And I got to thinking about that. Bob says that's how meeting people really starts, three minutes at a time. And isn't that how some of our relationships got started or should get started? Just three minutes at a time. I think God is calling us to love those on our right, love those on our left, love those in front of us, behind us. In Bob's book, I love this, the title, Everybody Always. That's who and how we should love. I think God expects us to love those that aren't expecting it. I think God desires us to love those that don't deserve it. We need to love people here inside the church, and we need to love people outside the church. Amen? And I've got to hand it to you. Don't let your head swell too big, but I do believe that you all have this marvelous way of showing each other love, and not only that, outside the church. I know we as a church try to do things to connect with the communities uh, all around us. Uh, uh, we, have a, we had a parents' night out not too long ago. How many know parents need a free night out once in a while? Well, the church came up with the idea. It wasn't our idea. Other churches have done it. Other people have done it. But we thought, give three hours for the parents to go out and have a date night, go out and uh, be child-free for uh, three hours. We hyped them up on candy, <laughs> on sugar drinks, uh, gave them all the Monocles pizza and cookies uh, that they wanted. Uh, we uh, had a bounce house. We had uh, games going on. We just had a ball with the kids. But we did that to connect with them. Um, next week, uh, uh, I guess, uh, oh, okay, get my notes here. School, back to school, that's what I'm going to, bear with me, got a lot on my mind. No, back to school, whenever we go back to school, the church, we give things away to the teachers, to the faculty. We actually took things to 11 schools this year. I think that's pretty amazing. We took Panera bread bagels and mini scones this year to just show the teachers we appreciate you. Thank you for the investment you're making in our children. Uh, next week, 9-11 uh, is almost here. We'll take uh, to the firehouses and the police stations a goodie bag saying, hey, we're so thankful for your sacrifice. We're thankful for uh, you keeping us safe. We just want to let you know we're here for you, let you know we're praying for you. I said all that to say, you know what we're doing by doing that? We're throwing many parties, 
little mini parties all around us, appreciating people, celebrating people, and let the love of Jesus shine through uh, our lives. And you know why we do that? Because Jesus told us to do that. We do that because Jesus compelled us to get out there, meet and greet the people. Jesus didn't hang out with the religious people. He hang out with the non-religious, the sinners that actually needed him. Let me go back to this story. Uh, uh, but first of all, I want to give you a challenge. This week, you're going to encounter people that you know, people that you don't know. When you encounter those people, I dare you to throw a three-minute celebration for that person. I mean, appreciate them. Love them. Be kind to them. Show them the love of God somewhere, somehow, some way. And I believe it can make all the difference. But as I go back to this prodigal son story, I wish it would end on the party. That would have been a high note, right? Well, it doesn't. Look at verse 25. It says, meanwhile, the elder brother was in the fields working, and when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants, what is going on? Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fatted calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. It says the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. This older brother, his attitude was, I refuse to go into the party. I don't care if my brother is back or not. He says, I refuse, and his attitude next shows it, says it all. He says to his father, all these years I have slaved for you. All these years, Dad, I have been slaving for you, in verse 30, when this son of yours, his attitude is so bad, he doesn't even call him his brother. He doesn't even use his name for sure. When this son of yours comes back from squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. What's the deal, Dad? What's the deal? What's going on? This isn't fair at all. I believe that Jesus is deliberately using the older son to represent the self-righteous, rule-keeping, religious hypocrites who actually wanted these sinners, these repentant sinners, to be punished, to actually teach them a lesson. And Jesus knows that some of these people that are listening to him tell this story absolutely have the same heart as this older brother. So that makes me want to stop right now and ask you to check your heart. Do you have a little bit of that older brother in you? Do you have a little bit of that heart uh, in you? And if you do, I'll give you three ways to find it out. The first one is you have an overinflated view of self. This older brother definitely had an overinflated view of self. He thought he was the only one out there. It says, look, all these years I have been slaving for you, just me. I've been making all the contributions. I've been making all the sacrifices. I've been sweating uh, uh, every day after day. From the older son's perspective, he's been doing it all. He forgets how much this father has been there for him. He forgets over the years how much this father has been for, there for him and taught him how much time, money, and effort this father has invested into his whole life. He just forgets that. But look at verse 29. The rest of that says, but he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you, and then I love this, and never disobeyed your orders. We know that's a lie, because there's no way anyone could hold to that kind of a standard that this guy thinks everything he's done has been perfect without any kind of mistake. I think it's so crazy that he has forgotten so easily how many times his own father has forgiven him, how many second chances his own father has given him. And his view of himself, this brother, is actually that, that I've made no mistakes. I've got everything perfect in my life. Well, you know, that's not so far-fetched to our thinking sometimes. We tend to categorize other people's sins as worse than ours. And that brother, I think, is doing that because he sees his younger brother's greed. He sees his younger brother's lust. But he totally ignores the pride and prejudice in his own heart. 
I think a lot of times when it comes down to it, we want God to be merciful with us, but we want Him to be just with other people. Amen? We may not want to admit it, but that's how we approach it. There's a problem with that, because if you start doing that, you start holding grudges against people. You start allowing a root of bitterness to grow up in your soul. The second way you can tell you've got a little bit of this older brother in your life is when you harbor a sense of being treated unfairly, which this older brother does. Verse 29, the second part says, Yet you have never given me, he's talking to his dad, you've never given me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Can you hear this guy? I don't know how old he is, but all I hear is wah, 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 wah. All I hear is whining. This guy's having a pity party. The brother felt like he had been stepped on. His feelings got hurt, felt like he had been overlooked, forgotten. And usually that comes from a wounded ego, right? Uh, kind of a broken, crushed pride. Well, when we're in the middle of a pity party, we're not too much different than this older brother. We want everybody to know about it, right? We want everyone to know just how pitiful and miserable we are. Amen? And just to follow that up, I've got a short little clip I want you to watch of Joyce Meyer throwing a pity party of her own at one of her conferences. Can you show that real quick, Merlin?
Amen. Isn't that true? It's funny, but unfortunately, it's so true. My last point, though, you know you have the heart of an older brother if we blame everyone, even God, for our unfair treatment. You know, you've heard me tell enough of this story right now to realize that that's what this older brother was doing. He was blaming his father first. He also was blaming his uh, older brother, had contempt for his older brother, especially in verse 30. It's just loud and clear. This son of yours. You can just hear the sarcasm in his voice. You can hear the contempt in his voice. He's not even happy that his brother's home at all. In fact, he's so unhappy and so jealous that he can't even bring himself to name the name of his brother, to tell his proper name. That's jealousy. Here's my point today. Lost people are going to sin because they're lost. Saved people are going to sin because none of us are perfect. And I'll say we have to have the perspective that, hey, when you look at the bigger picture, we're all in the same boat. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the way Jesus ends this story isn't how I would like him to end this story. He kind of leaves it up in the air. We've got the older brother stepping, standing outside the house, and it doesn't tell us whether he has a change of heart and goes in and joins the party. He might have. Maybe he didn't. But it doesn't tell us anything about the two older two brothers, what was ahead of them, what they did. I think Jesus does that deliberately on purpose so that we have to stop ourselves and check our own heart and ask ourselves the question, which of these brothers am I more like? Which brother am I more like? Am I like the brother that needs to turn around and head back home? Or am I the brother that's already home? The brother that's already home and need to come to the party. Need to start celebrating all that God's done in my life. As you're standing your feet this morning. I want to ask you and challenge you to check your heart this morning. Where's your heart? Are you out there celebrating God's love with others? Or are you needing to turn around and come back to Jesus? Are you celebrating God's love that He's loved you with in your life and spreading it to the people around you? Or do you have this attitude of the older brother? Father God, I pray in the name of Jesus today that everyone listening to this message would have a change of heart. Father, I pray that we wouldn't just have ears to hear, but we would have a heart to receive. And God, I pray that we would take a long look in the mirror. I pray, Lord God, and wonder if there are some people here that maybe aren't offering the people around them the same grace that you've offered to them. Maybe they've got some pride. Maybe they've got some prejudice in their hearts. Or maybe, God, we want to just give someone a lecture that we think they deserve instead of throwing them a celebration and a party. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people that are friending those people that are far from you. 
And Father, I pray that we would truly become more like you. I pray that those people this week that cross our paths, people that are hurting, people that feel like they're outside the church, outside the fence, fold in the family, God, I pray that we would throw them a three-minute party, a three-minute celebration, that we'd bring hope, love, and grace back into their life, maybe just for three minutes. And I believe if we do that, I believe that Douglas County will be a whole lot better place because the will of God will be being accomplished and done. Father God, I pray that we would hear this message, we would take it to heart, and as we leave this place today, we would see the church and the church's commission in, a such, in such a bigger way than we've ever seen it before to love those that are out there hurting, the outcasts, the misfits, those that can't find or don't see love anywhere else. I pray that we would truly step up and be the church I give you thanks for uh, the change you're bringing into our hearts today. We give you praise and glory for the week and the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Let God bless you all. Go out and change your communities.